AL2 listeners, you can find audio from this series and other series alongside study guides and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions following this podcast, you can email feedback at l2today.com. Proverbs 18.12 Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Proverbs 21.24 Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. Proverbs 28.1 The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Proverbs 29.23 One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good to see you all. Welcome to church this morning. Um, this is going to be an interesting sermon. Um, it, this is not going to be a theology of pride or insecurity. Um, it, it's actually going to be really nuanced to where hopefully it, it gives you some insight into what, what these really are. Um, throughout this series, what we've tried to do is to look at some practices and some principles that would help explain why discussions about our faith and our culture today are are really difficult. They almost never go the way we want. Um, and hopefully this series will also explain how other people tend to d- defy all of our assumptions, and, and they do fairly well. And sometimes you just, I, I sit and watch certain people. Um, I can watch YouTubes or videos about uh, even Q's and a, uh, Q&As with uh, like Tim Keller and others that it's just remarkable to me how how nuanced their understanding is of Christianity and how they can speak to cultural issues in, in, in a way that, that doesn't just tick everybody off. It just, it's remarkable to me. And so this whole series is really dedicated to, to, to try to pull that apart a little bit so that we can better understand it. And now, today what we're going to be considering is, is something that's really simple. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. Um, relationships are hard. They're, they're difficult for most of us. And, and oftentimes, they're really messy, um, it, typically because it involves people. And we're all messy. And when you put te- two people together in any kind of a relationship, a romantic relationship, or just a friendship, or even the dynamics of a family relationship, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be messy. And it's somewhat surprising to me that the, one of, what I believe are two of the main culprits in our relational difficulties are oftentimes confused with one another. And they're very, very different in some ways and they're very similar in some ways. And that, those are the issues of pride and insecurity. I've oftentimes said over the years to my wife that I, after nearly 24 years of counseling, a lot of counseling, um, I've always told her that I believe insecurity makes the world go round. Um, to some degree, I think I would be dishonest to tell you this morning that I think every one of us deals with both of these. Whether there's a subtle sense of pride that you have in comparison to other people you work with or other people that you, know, you compete with on, on, in athletics or uh, at school, um, we all have a sense of pride within us. And at the very same time, I think all of us are kind of insecure. 
There's an aspect of intimidation that we get when we're around certain kinds of people. Certain people that are accomplished or certain people that have, have, have a standing or influence with other people and you just get around them and pretty soon you feel like a nobody. It's the same thing. And yet it's very, very different. And so hopefully this is going to kind of unpack and expose that to, to really kind of get at some of those differences. Now, to better understand that, we're going to look at a case study like we've been over the last couple of weeks. Um, and then we're going to look at the, the essence of pride and insecurity, how they differ from one another and how they're similar to one another. And then lastly, we're going to look at how to offer a counter-narrative to, say, a friend or maybe even yourself when it comes to dealing with these issues. Now, as we start, I just want to launch into a, a case study, a belief narrative by a young man named Daniel. Um, in this particular case study, Daniel's a 32-year-old Christian male. Um, he's working in the investment banking industry. Um, Daniel comes from a poor family in Virginia. He's put himself through college, and he recently completed his graduate degree in business management from the University of Denver. Daniel is excelling in his position um, where he works, and yet he's experiencing increasing conflict and frustration with fellow workers who he claims just don't get it. They're, they're just kind of out to lunch. Um, but at the very same time, he claims that he actually feels like he'll never measure up to the standards or the metrics that he's, he's being measured by from his supervisor. Um, Daniel admits that he continually struggles. He kind of oscillates between first a certain pride or arrogance that he has uh, that comes from his beliefs that he's actually better than other people he works with. Um, and secondly, the other pole that he swings to is a tremendous sense of insecurity that, that causes him to, to believe that he needs to kind of compensate to cover up his shortcomings. And so in that sense, Daniel says that he, he just has come to realize that all of his relationships are almost like a, a peak on a roof and they run one way or the other. If you have a relationship with Daniel, he's either going to think of you as inferior to him or he's going to be intimidated by you. There's virtually, he's just come to realize there's virtually no relationships that are in the middle. They all go one way or the other. Now, when you pull apart uh, Daniel's belief narrative, you can pull it apart according to that four-part story that we've looked at over the last several weeks that the gospel gives us. It starts with creation, which basically is what a person believes about things as they should be. And so when you look at Daniel's belief narrative, it's easy to see that, in, in obviously, with, when you're discussing things with Daniel, that it's easy to see that he, he actually believes that we all have differing gifts and talents. In other words, he's practical enough and he's realistic enough to know that we're not the same. It, God was not a socialist. He did not create everybody endowed with equal gifts and talents. Daniel totally gets that. Um, he also believes our basic default system or what should be starts with a sense of self-initiative that you know distinguishes you from other people. Deep down inside, Daniel knows that what is going to cause him to differ from the rest of us is how well he dedicates himself and disciplines his life and orients it or aligns it with what he wants to accomplish. And he, he believes those two things deep, deeply 
inside of him. Now, that brings you to the second part of his belief narrative. What does he believe is wrong? This is what the gospel uh, discloses in in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall. And in Daniel's belief narratives, because he's a Christian, he really does understand sin. It's not some nebulous thing out there that that we happen upon sometimes. And I I can remember Chuck Swindoll when I was in seminary, he made a statement that just completely baffled me. He said, sometimes I think I can go for a month without sinning. I personally think that's complete hogwash. I don't think I can go for an hour without some sense of awareness of my non-compliance or conformity to either what God requires of me or transgression of what he forbids. It's just prevailing in me. And to hear a prominent person, teacher, in the United States say that he thinks he can go a month is just astounding to me. Daniel's not like that. Daniel totally gets it. He understands the curse of sin that is just kind of besetting upon all of us and the creation itself. He also understands a a really deep sense of injustice because he's come to understand that not everyone can win. And beyond that, he understands the biblical principle that the race doesn't always go to the swiftest. He's seen time and time again through his, his growing up in Virginia, through his time in school and now in the workplace, that oftentimes the brightest people get passed over because of politics. He's oftentimes seen the people that are the best athletes, something will happen, the ball bounces the wrong way, you know, and, and they lose. And so he, he understands that. And he, he, he knows that that's not, it's not right, but it's nonetheless a part of the, this world we live in. And lastly, when it comes to what's wrong, he, only stand, he really understands in a real deep practical sense what some of us try to deny you are only as good as your last performance. Whether you accept that or not, it's reality. I am measured every week by what happens here. And I have emails to prove it. There are weeks that some, sometimes I think people think I hung the moon. And then there's other weeks where I'll get emails from people in different parts of the country and statements from some of you, and it doesn't seem like I have any business at all standing up here. And whether you like it or not, there's a practical aspect of this world that you are only as good as your last performance. And Daniel totally gets that. He understands that that's not the way it should be, but that's the way it is. Now, when it comes to what Daniel really believes about redemption, that's the question, well, Tell me, Daniel, what, what do you think would actually make the situation better? And there's two things that kind of come to the forefront of Daniel's thinking. One is he, he really believes that admiration from other people would redeem things. Now, before you find fault with that, I want you to think of just how much what other people think of you matters, both positively and negatively. Think about when you were a kid and they were choosing teams for kickball. If they thought you were some schmuck and they didn't, you, know, you were the last one picked and you were humiliated because they appraised you in a certain way, maybe rightfully, but it didn't feel good. And on the other hand, there was times that people thought too much of you and it immediately became kind of intimidating because they thought you were better than you were. You knew you weren't that good. And so he, he, he understands deep inside of him that the admiration that what other think, people think about him in a positive sense is really a game changer. It's true. Now, he also thinks when it comes to redemption, 
he understands his Christianity more personally than corporately. Now, bear with me just for a moment as I unpack this. The way Daniel holds his Christianity is that he, he perceives the gospel primarily or almost exclusively is a message about personal salvation. But you see, he's done all of that. He accepted Jesus, he prayed, he got dunked in the tank. You know, he got all that stuff done a long time ago. But he doesn't see things corporately. He, he, he doesn't see a kingdom advancing. He honestly doesn't have much use for church in his life because he sees Christians as kind of like a lot of people that need crutches, people that really won't stand up for themselves. They, they, they really talk kind of stupid, and most of us do. And so Daniel's, he's pretty realistic. And so redemption for him looks like what he's already, he's had his ticket punched. And it's not working corporately, but he, he grasped it and he's embraced it personally. Now, it brings us to this last point of Daniel's belief narrative is what is he hoping for in the future? Now, I've told you week after week, this is the one where you usually have to push a person's belief system a little bit further than they would on their own. And those of you that have come to me over the years for counseling, you know that I always ask this question like, what do you think this marriage is going to mean to you 100,000 years from now? And it's not, you know, 100,000 as opposed to 999 or 99,999. It's you just thinking maybe there's a little bit different perspective than the one that I presently have. And so when it comes to Daniel, he's able to say, look, I just want to do my best. I want to be one of those people that, that people in the end, you know, the, the, you know, what Jarrett was saying about Gil Rhodes, for those of you that don't know Gil, you really missed it. He's going to be gone this week. Gil's been here for 15 years, and most people don't know him. He's been an elder. He's been a deacon. He's been on staff here. He hates staff meetings like I do, so me and Gil really get along in that regard. Um, but he's one of those guys that just does so much stuff that nobody knows. So for the next month or so, there's going to be wheels falling off around here because Gil just does stuff. When Cindy comes, he just goes and gets the, sets out the, the, the ice and stuff like that. And nobody ever tells him. He just does it. Two years ago, there was a terrible snowstorm on, on a Saturday night. And it was about 11.30. And, and I, got, I got out. I looked out. And it was six inches of snow on the ground. And I started to put my boots on. Tracy said, where are you going? I said, I, I'm going to go shovel because it's going to be bad tomorrow. And so I walked over. We live here close to the church. I walked over, and just as I walked up, Gil was just finishing all by himself. He's 83, and he shoveled the whole thing. Now, when Gil shovels, it's not like when the rest of us shovel. Gil shovels every piece of concrete around this building, even the sides. And so in, in that sense, Gil puts himself into a situation remarkably, he's adept at understanding and perceiving a situation, and he's cheerful about it. He's not like me. I get grumpy and bitchy, and, and it's like, what the hell is wrong with the rest of you? Why can't you see this stuff? And Gil is never like that. And now when it comes back to Daniel, you, you see that deep and ingrained in Daniel's worldview is the sense, I just want to do a good job. I want the rest of you to be able to say about me that, this is Daniel, not me, 
I want you to be able to say, he made all of this a little bit better. He was one of those guys that he, he wasn't, he, he wasn't constantly vying for attention or anything else. He just, I, I, he just wants to do a good job. And the last part of his future hope is that as a Christian, he knows deep inside of him when it's all over, he's going to spend eternity with God. Not a bad belief narrative. Now, as we move into the second part, how do you counter that? See, this is one of the ones that's kind of challenging because this guy is not a nominal Christian. It's not like he just doesn't know his butt from, well, I'm sorry, he, he, he doesn't know anything about Christianity. There's some people when you talk to him, you can tell you don't know Christianity. But Daniel really gets Christianity. But he's struggling. His belief narrative has put him in some sort of a cul-de-sac and he doesn't know how to get out of it. Now, what I told you earlier is very true that I believe every single one of us struggles with both of these right now. They're co-resident with every single one of you. And if you can't discover with just a, a brief survey or assessment of your life, if you can't discover where oh, there's pride and there's insecurity, I think there's something really, really wrong. Because I think it's co-resident with all of us. Now, what, whether it... Whether the, the pride is just a subtle sense of, I'm better than they are. I'm stronger than they are. I'm prettier than she is. I run faster. I ride my bike better than he does. Or whether it's, I don't really like playing with him because he, he just kills me. I don't like riding with him because I, I can never win. It's there. It's really, really there. Now, I want to press into this by first looking at how pride and insecurity differ from one another, because this is the first important part. I want to give you this first definition of pride comes from Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Pride is a feeling that you deserve to be respected by other people. It's a feeling that you are more important or better than other people. Now, that's ugly, right? That's one of those ones like, ugh, but it's there. It's there. It can't help but be there. Now, the Oxford Dictionary of the English Language defines insecurity this way. Insecurity is uncertainty or anxiety about oneself. It's a lack of confidence. They're exactly opposite. They're exactly opposite. So how in the world could these two things be, be the same? You see, by definition, pride and insecurity are opposites. Pride is thinking of yourself as more important than others, and insecurity is thinking of yourself about yourself in regard to others and your lack in confidence. Remotely different opposites. So how do they differ? I think it's important to recognize their similarities emerge from two very important components. Number one, both of them require a conspicuous amount of attention paid to yourself. Neither one of them is possible without you really paying attention to yourself. The second way that they're very similar is that both depend on a comparison between you and other people. Amazing, because in essence, they're exactly the same in function. It's only the conclusion that's different. You see, both of them require an eye that is paying scrupulous attention to you, 
an awareness of who you are and how you perceive yourself, and at the same time, another eye, which I can't do, but you have one an eye set on another person, that other people, that you're conspicuous aware of what they perceive about you. You can't have insecurity or pride without both those things going on. And the only thing that differs is that when you're arrogant and proud, it's because you are concluding you win. When you default into insecurity, the same function with a different conclusion, and you lose. That's remarkable. Two exact opposites that require exactly the same process. This is where it gets really nuanced. Now, in his chapter on pride, one of, one of the finest books ever written was Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. In the chapter they wrote on pride, he actually titles it The Great Sin. And he, he, he gives this helpful definition, and it's so nuanced about pride that I couldn't help but put it in here. This is what he said. He said, the trouble begins when you pass from thinking, I have pleased him all as well, to thinking, what a fine person I must be to have done it. Now, now, for those of you that know how hard it is sometimes to gain the approval of a coach or to gain the approval of a professor or to gain the approval of a parent, know exactly what this is. There was a time that you said, I just can't do it. I'll never get in. But he said, there's a problem when you get to a point where you're able to say, they approve of me all is well. The tipping point comes when you say, I must be pretty special because that was really hard. He said, the more you delight in yourself and the less you delight in the praise, the worse you are becoming. When you delight wholly in yourself and do not care about the praise at all, you've reached the bottom. The real, black, diabolical pride comes when you look down on others so much that you don't care what they think anymore. I don't think I've known very many people that have gotten there. See, I think pride for most of us, isn't that well-developed. It isn't that mutant, if you want to look at it another way. So you're still dual-visioned. You're still conspicuously aware of yourself and conspicuously aware of what others are thinking. So in that essence, pride is what literally makes, it makes it the worst of all sins. At the end of pride is where you really don't give a damn what other people think. And it totally, it, it, it totally removes any sense of your need for other people because you don't care. You're not aware of what, how they make you better. And you just don't care. Now, a few verses that won't give you a theology on pride and insecurity, but they nuance this for you. The first thing I want you to consider is Proverbs 18, 12. It says, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Now, that proverb is basically like drawing a line and saying you're right on the threshold of destruction. Pride's there. And if you're right on the threshold of honor, humility is there. 
Now, in the next verse, taken, the next proverb, taken from Proverbs 29, 23, it says, one's pride will bring him low. Different perspective. Now this is like a carriage that's moving you towards an outcome. Pride will bring him low. But he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. See, there's motion in this one. The other is just kind of static. Now, in these two Proverbs, it's really talking about this, the presence of pride before a fall or the presence of humility before honor. Either you've got it and then it happens, the pride and then the fall or the humility and then the honor, or it's the carriage in which you're traveling towards those two destinations. Now, that begs the question, why would the Bible make such a universal assertion? We're so nuanced. We're so different. No two of us face pride and insecurity the exact same way. None of us in this room or those watching online. It's impossible for us to view the same. But why does the Bible make such this prevailing universal umbrella? See, I don't know that we know for sure. I can tell you this week, after all my investigation, I can't tell you. We're not given some explicit instruction or explanation as to why those maxims are true. However, when you begin to examine what's happening in psychological medicine and psychological uh, neuroscience and what's happening today, I think we're beginning to discover it. It's beginning to give us a plausible explanation. Your perception of reality is intensely personal. You know that, right? How you grew up, where you grew up, how you were taught, what you've experienced, all those things determine how you see the world around you. And you take something simple like red, the color red, no one in the world quite sees it like you. But you've always imagined that red is red, right? And we use it in language, and we don't even know for sure what we're talking about. It's like the man saw red. Is he, is he at a stop sign? Or is he just super pissed? Right? So we, we, we've assumed this default setting is that everybody knows what depression is. Everybody knows what red is. But does anybody know it the way you do? Now, what I want you to do is a brief little exercise. The first one, I want, I want you to count the number of Fs that are in this statement. Don't say anything out loud. Just take your time. Now, unless you went to the schools I did, you're probably done by now. So we're going to go ahead and go to the next one. Um, I want you to read the phrases in these triangles. Okay, let's go back to the first one. How many Fs were there? That's a question. Okay, most of you saw three. When I did this, this is taken from a really famous marketing textbook. It's called The Dynamics of Human Communication. And it's talking about how marketing agencies have figured this out, how you see things. There's six. If you said there were three, you're wrong. I thought there was three. Now, the reason you don't even see the three that you missed if you said three is that the word of sounds like a V. And it made the F disappear in your mind. You didn't even see it. You counted several times. I had to go back and think, oh, that's not right. I was like, yeah, I guess I was wrong. Now, in the next one, in the triangles, 
You might have to read it out loud, but you see the word the is repeated twice in two of them, and the word a in one. But most of you didn't see that either. So if, if something this simple can prove to you that you see things habitually, not as accurately as you think, what you perceive to be reality is a perception. Is it so difficult to believe that the Bible is actually saying when you succumb to the perception of pride or insecurity, you can't fix it. It's incurable. You're saying, well, I can mess with a little bit of pride. You can't. It's a default setting that has you paying attention to the wrong thing. It's a mindset that has you so consumed that you can't be freed from it. And that's how the Bible can make a maxim, a statement so universal that says, if pride is at work in you, fall is coming to a theater near you and not yellow and red leaves. Hard, difficult times are ahead. But if you have come to a point that you actually can disattach yourself from being aware of yourself so constantly and aware of what other people are thinking so constantly that you actually can humble yourself, you've got good days ahead. I don't think that's so hard to understand. That isn't some deep, mystical understanding that's coming out of the Hebrew or anything else. That's just a raw bandwidth of the human mind. If you are held captive by pride, you're probably held captive by insecurity. And both of them are taking, taking you to a place you don't want to go. Now, this next verse, Proverbs 21-24, is scalding. When you actually look at it, I'm going to share with you some of the insight in it. In 21-24, it says, scoffer, in quotations, that's the name. Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. In the Septuagint, the Septuagint, once the Jews started getting Hellenized, Alexander the Great took Israel captive, and so he was forcing them to learn Greek. And so after a couple generations, the Jews couldn't read Hebrew anymore. And so all the scholars in Israel said, let's do them a favor and translate the Hebrew into Greek because then they'll get it. That's, that's what the Septuagint is. Listen to the way the Septuagint renders this verse. Scoffer is a This verse depicts literally a person that was boiling over with arrogance. That means there's no, there's no room left in the pot. It's completely filled, and now it's running over the edges because there's nothing left, and all that's in that is pride. It's talking about a person that is completely consumed and captivated with her perspective of herself and what other people think about her. There's no room for anything else. That is threatening. It's talking about a prison of empirical captivity. You can't pay attention to anything else from that point on. Now, this is what caused C.S. Lewis to write this. This is profound because he's, just, he's describing an encounter with a person that's not like you when you're arrogant. And he says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him 
is that he seems a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's profound. He put his finger on the very thing. His bandwidth isn't consumed with what you think about him or what he's thinking about himself. It's entirely on something else. Now, the last verse I want you to consider is taken from Proverbs 28.1. This is the only one that really... The Bible doesn't talk about insecurity a lot. It's kind of, it was kind of surprising to me. But this verse is really interesting. It just says, in 28.1, it simply says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as lion. As a lion. Now, in this last Proverbs, insecurity is described in a really interesting way. The wicked, the term for wicked throughout the book of Proverbs, there's three terms. Uh, the fool is a person who's morally deficient. He doesn't know any better. The wicked, though, was a term that was used of a person who did know and chose to reject the truth. A scoffer is a person who did know, chose to respect it, and then mocked those who didn't reject it. And so when it refers to a wicked person here, it's speaking to a human mind that knows the truth but chose to reject it. It's not just the, just the evil skirmish of people that are bad. This has a very deliberate connotation to it because it depicts a person who knew the truth and, didn't, and just rejected it. When it says the wicked flee when no one pursue, it depicts a person who is tormented by what she suspects to be true, even though she rejected it. And then when it flips, in the contrast, the righteous was a term, a name that was given to a person who knew the truth and built her life on it. And it says that person, the righteous, it, it, this is the way it reads in this clause in the, in the original language, the righteous, just as a lion, stand in a state of having been persuaded. In other words, what it's getting at is an internal tipping point in the minds of both, one, both, both, both people. You have a person who knew the truth and knew how it should have gone, but didn't do it that way, and now is afraid though there's nothing external to her. And then you have a person that is righteous, that understood the truth, stands in a state of having been persuaded, and as bold as a lion even when things are there. And so the verse is taking you away from the outside and is pushing you deep inside of a person's psyche and is able to say, how do you really stand? And ironically, it's, it's remarkably close to what James writes. The half-brother of Jesus, they called him old camel knees. When he writes in James 1, he said, don't be the doubting one. If you do, you're going to become like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. You will become unstable in all of your ways. That's insecurity. But it's insecurity that's predicated and planted in your soul because you knew what was right. That's an amazing description of insecurity. Now, how do you apply these to Daniel? Quickly, in regard to creation, how things should be, we, you can affirm the fact that the Bible says we're not the same 
look, we're male, female, married, single, tall, short, fat, skinny, rich, poor, smart, stupid, amazing diversity amongst us. We're not the same. We have different gifts and talents. And we are to apply ourselves. Just like Paul says, man, I beat my body and make it my slave lest after I've preached to others I should be disqualified. Listen, those of you that are Christians, I'm begging you. Let's turn loose of this idea that you can just let go and let God. Christianity is a demanding religion. And if it's not demanding, you don't understand it. You cannot just simply say, wow, I've accepted Jesus and all things are going to go well. That's not what Jesus said. He said, if you do not want to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. The rich young ruler, he tells him the one thing, he puts his finger on the one pulse. He said, go away. He said, he's, he says, you need to obey the law. He said, I've done all of that. He said, go away and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And he let him go away sad because he wasn't willing to do that. The Christian life is not easy. It's like going through a really narrow gate and really walking on a really narrow way. And the way that leads to destruction is a lot of the crap that you're hearing today. Broadways, broad gate, easy equals destruction. It's not the same. It's not the same. Daniel gets that. He, there's an, a part of this, he knows that he just can't let go and let God. He knows he just can't sit back. And I'm not talking about work righteousness. I'm talking about just understanding the importance of our lives. Understanding the importance of our marriages. Being willing. Just two weeks ago, I sat in a room with a, a young couple, and I just had that, I just, I, I watched them bicker for 45 minutes. And I simply had to stop, and I just said, do you even like each other anymore? And they were blown away. I, they looked at me like, wow. And I said, look, I told you I was blunt. I said, do you even care? Because if you keep doing what you're doing, just admit, just be man enough, a woman enough to own it, that you really don't give a rip whether your marriage survives, because it's not going to make it if you don't take some serious steps. Haven't heard from them again. Who are we kidding? Daniel gets this. He gets this. We do need to apply ourselves. We need to listen to the truth. We need to be sincere in applying ourselves to our lives. Our primary purpose is to glorify God, to honor Him, to enjoy Him. The catechism, chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what creation teaches us. Now the fall, what is wrong? Remember, Daniel gets sin. Sin did destroy our relationships with each other and with the creation. He gets that. But the greatest loss is how it wrecked our relationship with God. And the fall also teaches us that we can't, we can't do anything to merit grace. Again, that doesn't mean that we don't apply ourselves to our faith. But Christianity says... There's nothing you can do or give or think or be that's going to cause God to be indebted to you. You're going to have to be willing to accept his grace. So that brings us to the redemption part. What would actually make it better? And the gospel, the gospel first does offer us reconciliation with God, but it's for a greater purpose of, of, of being able to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. It, it causes us to be people of influence. 
for the sake of other people, not just for ourselves. Redemption also shows us that once our relationship with God is unwrecked and made right, when we actually accept Christ, we actually believe in both as our Lord as well as our Savior, our relationship with God is rectified. And in that rectification, there's a sense in which for the first time in our lives, we have a freedom to develop our identity on something other than the world, other than other people. And the last thing about the redemption that I, I think is really germane to Daniel's is that we should be concerned about what other people think. Are you surprised? You should be paying attention to what other people think. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 and 4, Paul actually says, you should think more highly out of the interests of others than your own. You have to know who they are to do that. You can't cordon off the world and act like it's your enemy and be able to do what he just called you to do. You have to know and to understand and have compassion for your fellow man. Christians as well as non-Christians, to be able to do that. That's redemption. That's the goodness that we bring into our lives as one another as Christians. And that's the sweetness that you bring into this world with non-Christians. It's because you care, because you actually have the confidence to believe, God saved me for a reason. He has me in this place, in this world, at this moment in time, to do his thing things that he prepared beforehand for me to do. That brings us to this last point, future glory. God is moving history toward the fulfillment of his purpose in redeeming all things. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Yes. You have to believe that. You see, for the longest time when I was growing up a dispensationalist, I actually had this view of things that God was kind of involved in some things, but he wasn't involved in most things. And guess what the default was? He was always involved in the good things. Thank you, Jesus. And in the bad things, it was like, where the hell were you? Because I had this automatic default of thinking, I want him to be in my good things. It's so comforting to know that he's there when things, I win. When things go the way I expect them to go. But it's almost impossible to think that he was with me in my worst nightmare. And what I've learned over the years is that he's in all of it or he's not in any of it. God is moving your life and this world every moment of every single day towards his end. All of it. And once we accept that, we'll have peace in all things. Not ease, but peace. True shalom. Last thing about future hope, we're participating in the kingdom now. God's coming kingdom is not some glorious rolling up of the sky. There'll be a day for that. But what's happening today is people in this room and people all over this world that know Jesus. The Spirit is animating their minds by knowing the truth, 
He's animating their lives. There's Philippians 2, verse 13, 12 and 13. He's at work in them to will and to work according to his pleasure. And like Schaefer said, they're bringing the gifts of the bridegroom back into the world. You know what that means? You're a little bit of Jesus to this world. That's a big calling. And so in the end, heaven is really heaven because it's, it's in alignment with everything you're working for now. It's not going to be some boring thing where I hate harps. That was supposed to be a joke. <laughs> it was bad, I know. People tell me, you should stop telling jokes. It's like, I know, don't tell me, I already know that. Heaven is going to be a glorious place. Because all of your energies and capacity and creativity are actually going to make a difference. But they are now. But then it's going to be glorious. And so this is a little bit different than a counter-narrative. You're not trying to flatten. You're just trying to sharpen some of those things. Now, I want to finish with a quote by Tim Keller. This is taken from a really small book. We're going to try to have some maybe on the shelf by next week. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. See, what Keller calls this understanding of the gospel is the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Now, if you flip that over, what he's dealing with is the captivity of self-absorption. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. This is the way he describes it. He says, friends, wouldn't you want to be a person who does not need honor nor is afraid of it? Someone who does not lust for recognition, nor on the other hand is frightened to death of it? Don't you want to be the kind of person who, when they see themselves in a mirror or reflected in a shop window, does not admire what they see, nor does cringe either? Wouldn't you like to be the type of, the type of person who, in their imaginary life, does not sit around fascinating, fantasizing, about hitting self-esteem home runs, daydreaming about success that gives, gives them the edge over others. Pride and insecurity will never allow you to be that person. You'll have to learn how to forget yourself. You'll have to learn how to admire something than, that's greater than you could ever be. And I really believe that Jesus is the only one. Next week, the long-awaited sermon on sex. <laughs> so all you young dudes, be sure to be here. Okay. Right. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> My jokes are bad, remember? All right, a couple questions and we'll be done. Can you address what to do or think if my insecurity comes from moral failure before God instead of my perception of what other human beings think of me. Yeah, pray. Pray. What other people, there's no restitution, there's no reconciliation between you and other people. When you allow your sin, see, this is the reason that David said, against you and you only have I sinned. He's not saying that there wasn't consequences horizontally, but you have to deal with your sin before God. And the only way to do that is not being better, is to accept what he sent. 
When Jesus says, look, I've held out my hands to you, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how, how often I would have gathered you like a hen would gather her chicks under her wings, but, but you, you won't. I believe that many people that are trapped in insecurity about their sin are caught in this really idiotic irony. They believe enough about what the Bible says to be convicted of their sin, but they don't believe what the Bible says about what to do with their sin. It's absurd. If you're going to own what the Bible says that says you suck way worse than you possibly imagined, then have the same intellectual integrity and faith to accept what it says. We all suck. And if you suck, there's a savior for suckers. Come and trust him and let him make your yoke easy. Come and put your faith in him and see if he doesn't make your burden light. But people won't do that and they get stuck in this cosmic suspension between guilt and how to deal with their sin and in the, all the while they're conspicuously aware of what other think, people are thinking about their sin. That's stupid. The gospel doesn't suspend you in that place. It frees you from that place. Believe what it says. Pray. That's all I got on that one. Next question. How can parents build self-esteem in their children without also fostering unhealthful pride in those children? Don't build self-esteem. How did you get that from what I said? You shouldn't be working towards low self-esteem or high self-esteem. You need to stop thinking of yourself so much. Teach your children how to pay attention to other people. Those are little things. When you take them to the zoo and there's a bunch of crap on the ground, have them pick it up and say, isn't that, that I, I don't know why people would do that. Let's pick that up. You know, they don't have to pick up everything. Right? I just think you guys, some of you guys go overboard. But show them, teach their little minds how to pay attention to things. Cause them to be observant. Teach them how to be aware. Discuss things, the discussions. When, when you had a bad discussion at Thanksgiving with your family and you're on the way home, talk about it. Talk about it with your kids and train their little minds how to pay attention to things. Because as they do that, they have a habit of not thinking of themselves. But don't get caught in the trap of trying to teach your children self-esteem. It would take them into the wrong place. Just like trying to focus on low self-esteem will take you in the wrong place too. The person who esteems herself properly is the person that hardly thinks of herself. That make sense? It's not a person thinking, I'm thinking too much of myself, so I need it lower. Or I'm thinking too lowly of myself, so I need to think higher. You're not going to get where you want to go unless you forget about yourself. Then you'll find that it's not so hard. Last question. Oh, I thought that was the last one. Um, what strategies can I use to overcome insecurity in the workplace without hurting my self-confidence? I don't know if I just asked, answered that one. What strategies can I use to overcome insecurity in the workplace without hurting my self-confidence, yet still be humble at the same time? Let me think about that just for a moment. There's so many different 
if you were sitting in my office, I could figure this out pretty, a lot easier. Number, the first question I would ask you, whoever you are, would be, okay, do you have any Christian friends in the place that you work? Now, the reason I would ask that is to say, maybe you need to sit down and be a little naked, not physically naked, but emotionally naked, and ask the person, tell me what you really think of me and calibrate your perspective. Because you might find out you've been stuck in a closet with your own thoughts for way too long. And you've, you've rubbed things to where they're festered. And you, can't, you don't know good, a, a good job from the bad job anymore. It's that jacked up in your mind. And sometimes it helps just to be able to sit down and talk with someone else. Whoever wrote this, if you want to come in and talk to me, come in and talk to me. I do this all the time with people. But what I found is that a lot of people, especially that are dealing with insecurity, there is oftentimes nothing that you can do to overcome it. Because you're, you're, you're trying to compensate it all the time. You believe in your mind, you've never done a good thing, there's never been a smart word that's ever come out of your mouth, you don't know why in the world this company doesn't fire you, and you're just failing all the time. And sometimes you need someone to just say, wake up, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. There's things that obviously they know and believe in you, and maybe you need to figure out what those are and stop believing and listening to yourself so much. And maybe you need to let somebody else speak to you. So sometimes it helps to be able to have a friend. Now, if, if you're all alone, if you work for yourself and this is a problem, you need to counseling. <laughs> you, you could, Dustin could see that one coming a mile away. <laughs> no, seriously, it, sometimes we need help with each other. Sometimes we just need someone to say, hey, could you tell me if I'm crazy? Nine times out of ten, they're crazy. But that's okay. We can be crazy with each other. That's what real community is about, being real. So great questions today, by the way. All right, we're going to pray, and um, I'm sure Zach's going to come up and play a little bit while, uh, usually give you some time to think about stuff. So I want you to think about this. Ask yourself a simple question. Where is my pride? If I'm prone to pride, where is it going to come from? If I'm prone to insecurity, where is it going to come from? You know, you might be vocationally a rock star, but you think you're kind of a turd when it comes to other people. You're, my, I'm, my relational capacities are really small. And so when it comes to being around some of you that are like relational magnets and stuff, it's like, wow, he makes me feel puny. But I am puny in that regard. So sometimes we have to own who we are. And so in the end of this, take, take a few moments and confess where you're proud. Confess where you're insecure. Ask God to be maybe sending some people that can help you calibrate this. If you need to repent of your pride, do it right now. There's no, there's no reason to wait. Do it right now. Just confess to God that, man, I've allowed myself to think way too highly of myself. And I can see in the way that I've treated other people and I can see in the way that I even think about myself that I've got this unbelievable arrogance. If you're insecure and you're always walking around like Eeyore thinking you can't do anything right, confess that.
Because it's not true. You all have gifts and talents. Maybe you're still trying to do something. You're, you're the key in a wrong lock. And you have to figure that out too. Take some time to consider these things though. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I just ask that these will be a few moments. I know this is really nuanced today. I, I, I took a risk and gave that little assignment to try to just kind of get people to back up a little bit. Because the way we see stuff isn't necessarily real. And oftentimes, our pride is predicated on an unrealistic appraisal. Sometimes our insecurity is just as predicated and just dependent on an unrealistic appraisal. One is the exact same process as I tried to point out. It just differs in this conclusion. One way, we say, I win, I'm better than the rest of you. I lose. I must not be good for anything. Both are a lie. They're just a lie. Father, help each of us, to perhaps this morning to be a little bit free from that prison. Help us understand the peace that you give to those that are willing to live in their own skin, to understand their lives and to apply them wisely in the world we live. I pray that as we would worship in these coming moments, we would do it with unbelievable hearts full of gratitude. As we would sing, we, we, we could actually sing as if we don't mind who hears us because we long that you do. So we commit these moments to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find audio of the series and other series alongside study questions and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions, send an email to feedback at l2today.com. 